Canucks Central Wednesday. It's Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw. We're in the Kintech studio. Got a big show coming up. Kevin Woodley is going to join us. Got overrated, underrated coming up in the second hour of the show. So a lot to get to after the Canucks get a win in their first game with Rick Tockett behind the bench. Tockett mania. Uh, a dominant performance against the uh, basement-dwelling Chicago Blackhawks. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a dominant performance. But they have five shots on goal, even strength, something like that? Something along those lines, like the least amount of shots, the fewest shots the Canucks have allowed in, what, 12 years in a game or something like that? <laughs> well done. Good job. 12 years ago. Oh, were we on the iPhone 4 in 12, like 12 years ago? Like, well, yeah, 12, What's happening? Yeah, it was. And 12 years ago, it was 2011. The Canucks had a very, uh, well... Depends on how you view it, but a, a good year. Twelve years ago, that's uh, about the same time that my uh, my pass card came in. I got I got like ripped to shreds when I got to work today. Really? Why? Yeah, because I lost my pass card to get into the office. Right? Really? And so, like the last week or so, I've been having to hail Josh to come and let me into the building, which is always like very like you know doesn't feel great. You're, like you're sitting out there in the cold, twiddling your thumbs, waiting for somebody to let you in. You're like, what's this guy up to? And um. You're so, just a fan of Sports in the 650, hanging outside the building. Today, I, I, I get in, and Josh comes to, to let me into the building. And first thing I say to him is like, my card's coming in sooner or later. And there he is holding it. And he's like, aha, I got it right here. What were you, like 12 in this picture? And everybody, Elon, Victor, the intern, Dom, Cam, our fearless, uh, fearless leader. Everybody's giving me the gears over this 15-year-old photo. So how many years ago was that photo taken? It's 15 years old. 15 years old. You're working for the company for 15 years? Yeah. That's wow. a win. That is a win. <laughs> You've had a big glow-up, though, so it's nice to like have the picture big as a reference. Up? I've aged yeah. like a fine wine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you can just like look at it and be like, look how look how much I've grown as a person. Yeah. It's uh, it's not a great photo. I will say that much. You know, you I'm that guy it. with like the ugly yearbook photo, you know? Is it great. worse than the Chara photo? Mm, yeah, Close. no, it's it's like about the same same range, like same time frame, <laughs> same vintage. So you can you can imagine. Uh, all right, that's that's enough about me. Uh, Vancouver Canucks. So they get the win last night. Solid performance. You can check out the post game from last night with Satin Bick uh, on the podcast feed if you do so wish. But a lot of discussion today around. Yeah. Tell me if you're surprised on this, Sat. What's going to happen at the trade deadline with the Vancouver Canucks? <laughs> and because of some speculation, the rumor mill continues to churn yeah. around Bo Horvat and Pierre Lebrun reporting that conversations with the Carolina Hurricanes have been there. Carolina, obviously... Uh, would be uh, maybe more open to it should they be able to talk contract with Bo Horvat, which is something, as we've discussed, is not what the Canucks are currently willing to do. Um, what is your read on this situation as it continues to develop? And what does that mean? Like, why don't the Canucks want teams to talk to Bo Horvat when we've seen, you know, San Jose is okay with it when it comes to a Timo Meyer trade discussion? And, you know, it's always different for different teams. The situation with Timo Meyer is also somewhat limited by the fact that he has another year on his contract yep. beyond this season. Or, I mean, I would say that he has another year of control because he's RFA after this season, has a qualifying offer coming up. And that qualifying offer is obviously, like, something that's a huge number. What, over $10 million, I think the qualifying offer for him is? Yeah. Something along those lines. And aren't you, like, not supposed to talk contract until July 1st, technically? Technically, anyways, right? Yeah. Like, I, 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 no, for him, I think it's okay to talk extension. Oh, okay. Because he's in the last year of his deal. It's like, you know how Pedersen, they're allowed to talk to him next year, come yes, July yes. 1st, because he's entering the final year of his deal. So oh, I think, my bad. He's yeah. just he's RFA at the end of the year, but uh, still has control for one more year. It's uh, sort of like the Brock Besser situation where he's got a really high qualifying offer. Precisely. And... That situation, because of the qualifying offer, I think that may play a part into it. With Bo Horvat, I think there's also the simple explanation here. The Canucks don't want to lose a lot of leverage because there's still a desire to keep Bo Horvat. There's always yeah. been a desire to keep Bo Horvat to some extent. They know it's going to be hard. They know it's unlikely. They know it's not going to be something that's going to be easy to do. But if he can sign for the number they like, they're still open to that happening. So I think until that ship has sailed, I think that's a part of it here. 
But also, as long as you're six weeks away from the trade deadline and you haven't received an offer yet that makes you truly think, even though you are receiving stuff that is making you at least, like Elliot Friedman mentioned, slot the contenders from the pretenders as far as suitors for Bo Horvat. I think they're, they're getting a sense of that. But I don't think anything's come across their table that they're sitting and looking at and saying, we got to consider this. And if somebody hasn't given them anything to consider, why would you let that team talk to Bo Horvat? Because once a team talks to Bo and it becomes crystal clear what he's looking for and perhaps where he's willing to sign and where he's not willing to sign, the leverage completely changes. And until you get to the very end or close to the trade deadline, when you're getting to the stage of, I have to trade him for whatever we can get, then I think it changes the equation because it's clear he's not coming back. But I think it's more than anything, a leverage game to this point, especially when you're still six weeks out. And if teams think that there's a chance the Canucks may keep him, maybe they give you what you're looking for to make that trade. You may um, go from five teams that are really pursuing Bo Horvat to one team that's really pursuing Bo Horvat. If people start to find out where he would really like to stay long term and if they have a chance to make it work with Bo Horvat beyond just this year as as a rental. Ultimately, so there's two things here. You know, is this more about them holding out hope that Bo will take the contract that they've put on the table, the mm. best offer that Jim yeah. Rutherford talked about last Monday, or is it more about it being a negotiating tactic when it comes to trade? Because it could always be you get really far down the line with a team and then you say, well, if we go with this sort of a deal, maybe we'll let you talk to Bo. Like, I, I could see both sort of playing a factor here. Yeah, and, you know, that may very well be the case. What I also kind of wonder, and you we've seen this with their approach to the offseason this past year, and also their approach to the whole JT Miller situation, which is they have an assessment and a number that they feel good about in terms of keeping the player, but they have a level of return that they're looking to get as well. And then you kind of look at it and you're saying, is this trade more valuable to us with what we're getting, or is it more valuable to us to make this signing? And I think what they look at Bo is there's a number in mind and there's a cap in mind that they have. And like Earth mentioned to us yesterday, I don't know if they've gotten to that true cap yet. And I think they're close to it because Rutherford himself said we made our best foot. When you say you put your best foot forward, that's true. There's always some wiggle room, like tiny bit of wiggle room if you truly want to keep the player. So I think there's also that. But I don't think this is all a ploy to keep Bo. I think it's simple. They just haven't received the offer they're looking for yet. If they had received what they're truly looking for, I think the trade would have been made. Because at that stage, they look at it and say, oh, we, we, this is the return we want. And this return is incomplete. It is not, it's in, in no way contingent on a contract. Yeah. Like, if we get this return, I don't care if both signs for $6 million. Like, I'm making this trade. Yeah. You know, and I think that's what they're waiting for. And there's a number in mind with Bo, but it's becoming increasingly difficult to get to that number because Bo may not even like that number to begin with. Like your num your final best ditch effort may still fall well well short of what Bo Horvat is willing to sign for. Right. So I think that's part of it. But I think it's more than anything. They want to make sure they have their options open. Cause they're and, and this is kind of way the way a lot of asset values are kind of measured it's like okay we have a number in mind we want to save trade the player for but there's also a trade return we want and until either gets met you're going to hold and i think that's where the canucks find themselves but i think if they get the offer they want dan i don't think they're hesitating this is it's it, it sort of uh, i know i'm uh, a mr positivity around these parts but <laughs> somebody said that today uh we'll get to that later on in the show but mr. positive um you weren't very positive about your um <laughs> about your uh, uh, old photo. No, I'm not very positive about that. But yeah. I'm more positive on the Canucks uh, than the rest of the market. So people say. Um, but the positive mindset of me says, well, if you have five, six, seven teams that are willing to or wanting to acquire Bo Horvat's services at the deadline, why potentially limit that by letting anybody really talk to him you might be able to get teams bidding against each other just because Bo Horvat is quite clearly the best asset on the market right now mm -hmm. you can talk about Ryan O'Reilly all you want he was having a terrible season before he even got hurt now he's coming off of a 
of an injury? I mean, you know, yeah. what are we talking about here? There's not really any other centerman that produce in the same way that Bo Horvat has been producing all season long. No. Now, uh, Jonathan Taves, I don't think is at all in the same class. Number one, he's nowhere near the player Bo is right oh, now. Taves is, no. No, he's not. But also, Taves is a third-line center for, uh, for a contender. But even even so, you're talking about a $10 million cap hit. Even if you retain half, it's five. If you want to facilitate it, Another team that means how hard, how many hoops are you going to jump through to get Jonathan Taves on your contract? Yeah. Ultimately, it's so that's why I don't see that being, you know, really somebody in Bo in Bo Horvat's class. I do think though that a smart team probably looks at ROR, ROR versus Bo and says, I'd rather make the ROR trade because I think in the playoffs, you probably get pr- similar value for our team. This guy's done it before, and I'm probably not paying the same price. Yeah, like if I'm another team, I'd rather trade for O'Reilly than I would trade for Bo. As far as a rental goes, if I'm, if I'm looking for a rental, I'd rather do that. The price is going to be cheaper, track records. But I, th- I just think that's a better value bet to be making. But I totally understand your point. He's the hottest player on the market, so to speak. O'Reilly not scoring anywhere near no. his career norms either. He's not. Um, before he got hurt this year. Yeah. Uh, so, so there is some factor there, but um, I don't necessarily disagree with you that he would be a better uh, buy-low option than Bo Horvat. The other thing that the Canucks could do, so let's say they really are vehemently against letting other teams talk to Bo Horvat when it comes to negotiations. The one thing they could do is say, in order to get a better return, okay, we'll retain. We'll retain half on Bo's five and a half. Yeah. And now you're just taking on a $2.75 million cap hit. I think that could be something that extracts extra value in a Bo Horvat trade negotiation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something they have to really... I mean, most teams that really want Bo, they have to, they have to get the Canucks to either retain or take something back. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just kind of the reality of where the Canucks find themselves. And I think that's something that can help you get a little bit more back in return. But at the same time, the entire bow thing, and I see people saying like, hey, maybe the best time for you to get the return is right now instead of waiting for the trade deadline. It comes down to there being enough willingness and there being enough cap space. And right now, there are teams that are serious about it. But if you even look at the teams that are serious, they might still be a week or so away from having the enough cap space accrue to even take bow on at mm. half the salary. So I think part of the reason this is taking time and, and to people mentioning like, why aren't you making this sooner? Why aren't they letting people talk to Bo? I think that we're just at a stage right now that teams are getting enough cap space to actually act on what they're trying to do. So at the same time, like let's say there's a team they're talking to. Well, the Canucks know the team can't make that trade maybe for another four or five days or another week or two. Right. So what's the point of you letting that team talk to Bull Horvat two weeks before that team can even make the trade? So I, I just think that a lot of this stuff, we're still at a stage yet where they haven't gotten close enough for that to be a serious discussion. So I don't think, I don't think, this is my opinion at reporting, I don't think the Canucks are completely vehemently against letting anybody talk to their players, but get get us close enough to a stage where we think a trade's going to happen that we can we can take that step. Right. I don't think they're close to that yet. And I think that's the biggest thing why there isn't that type of movement or that, that type of acknowledgement from Vancouver. It's more about getting close to a package that makes you feel comfortable doing that um so okay so that that was the latest on Bo and more speculation on another Canuck Andre Kuzmenko sat uh Kevin Weeks saying today and Dan Milstein was on Donnie and Dolly um talked about the contract of course uh negotiations underway with Andre Kuzmenko and he loves Vancouver and all these great things would love to stay here as long as it makes sense for both team and player, uh, the the usual that you would get from a public interview from an agent. Uh, Dan Milstein, very happy to see Andre Kuzmenko hitting one of his bonuses last yeah, night man. as well. Kuz, I mean, uh, Dan Milstein knows how to play the social media game. Oh, he knows how to play the game. You know, it's promoting the player, promoting uh, his agency. It's great stuff, right? Um, man. <laughs> so Kevin Weeks today, I should finish this yeah, thought. Yeah, okay, finish the thought. Uh, Kevin Weeks said that they've had discussions on a contract extension, there's no urgency yet, but a potential bridge deal could land two years between five and six million on the average annual value. Yeah, and I wonder if the worst kept or or like the the worst played, the worst acted um, cat and mouse game 
that's already been determined is this Kuzmenko Canucks right. you know, contract negotiation. I just wonder if like they already know what it's going to be and that it's going to be pretty like I wonder if they're in their back pocket. They're pretty much sure what it's going to look like. And it's just a matter of let's just get this done. And maybe it's about timing to to get that deal done. I don't know. I just because what, what did Rutherford say? earlier this week or last week when he met with the media and he was talking about projections for next season and the contract offer they have in front of Bo Horvat. Yeah. He said, if we sign Bo to the contract we're offering him today, we're over the cap next year. Yeah. How are you over the cap next year? Unless you, you're projecting a number for Andre Kuzmenko. You have, what, $14 million in cap space yeah, for next year? Yeah, $14 cap space next season. There's no way you're over the cap with your projections unless you're projecting Kuzmenko staying. And how are you projecting Kuzmenko staying unless you have a good idea what it's going to take to keep Kuzmenko? Yeah. I'm just saying, like, I don't buy into this whole, like, the Canucks are still trying to decide or whatever. Like, I think it's pretty... Sh- pretty much decided Kuzmenko's going to stay here. We'll see if it's a two-year bridge deal or if it's a bit longer, but the range is going to be what we all, always talked about, around $5 million per season. Like I, And probably with how he's played, Dan, it's going to be slightly above. Yeah. Like a two-year deal worth $11 million, five and a half per year. That's what I think the contract is going to come in if it's a two-year deal at between 10 to $11 million. That would be my guess in terms of the money on a two-year deal. It's so hard with Kuzmenko because, I mean, it seems like an obvious situation right now where you can cash in on trade but when you find a player that is and has been as good a fit as Kuzmenko has next to Elias Pettersson that has to have some value to your team Mm. right and if you can project this out as a duo for the next number of years I think that also carries some value I don't know if I love the two-year deal aspect of it all because while, yes, shorter term definitely gives you more flexibility in the mm-hmm. long run, it lessens your risk on a long-term deal, um, it also, let's say it does start to work, now when the Canucks are sort of, in theory, through their retool sat, yeah. now they've got to renegotiate with a player that's probably projecting as one of their biggest scorers. Yeah. And- or, or biggest offensive drivers. When, you know, Pedersen's new deal is already kicked in and who knows what else is on the books by then. But the point is, like, that's you. I think when you're thinking about a retool, you'd rather have more cost certainty in the long run with Andre Kuzmenko than having to renegotiate two years from now. Yeah, like the upshot of a two-year deal is very beneficial for the player, of course. More beneficial to the player, I think. Yeah, than it is for the team, especially if you're looking at the timelines, for instance. Now, his, his whole idea, and, and the whole... Elliot mentioned this to us last Wednesday when we talked about Kuzmenko with him, and he said, I wonder if some players around the league are looking more at short-term deals in Cap's order to go up and everything. cash in when the cap goes up in two years' time. Yeah, and I'm sure that plays a part into it, and, and you can easily make the argument that here's a player that has already taken a leap from the KHL. He made a one-year bet on himself, so why wouldn't he do it again? And for sure, and maybe that's ultimately where it goes. And I think the Canucks have, have talked different frameworks, right? Like maybe, right. maybe they felt at one point for Kuzmenko that it would make more sense to sign a four-year, five-year deal at around of money, you know, a bit more with how he's played. But outside of that... Outside of that, yeah. Like, you know, when when speculation last week got into the $6 million range, $7 million range, seemed a little too rich. Um, is that sort of the tax that uh, Kuzmenko is, is saying you'll have to pay in order to um, have the player longer than two years, uh, potentially so, because as much as teams know, hey, cap's going to go up in a couple of years, if we can get this player locked in right now at this number, that number could look really nice two years from now, all players and agents can play that game too. Yeah, no, 100%. And, you know, I don't know what the term's going to look like ultimately on a Kuzmenko contract, but I just think he's going to get done with Vancouver. Yeah. That's kind of where I, what I feel about it. So, as much as we can sit here and talk about the reasons to trade him, and I think there are a lot of good reasons to talk about trading him in terms of assets and yeah. and where you're trying to trend towards. But if the Canucks are truly looking to move Garland and Besser, you can understand why they want to keep Kuzmenko. Like I think their ultimate goal still here is to find a deal for Brock Besser, probably unlikely by the deadline. And as much as you know, Rick Tockett coached Garland before and they've had success before, I don't think... They're trying to hold on to Garland. I think they'll happily trade him as well if possible. 
So if the Canucks can find a way to move both those guys and they move Bo Horvat by the time you get through the offseason, then you can understand where Kuzmenko makes sense. Because yeah. otherwise, I get it. You're like, well, you have all these other guys. May as well use them. You can't trade them. Why add another guy to the pile? But it's kind of like we talked about before. It's about when, the pieces of the puzzle when you put them together. And it may look awkward as long as the picture makes sense towards the end. But yeah. What, when, where do we see the end of the picture? Is it one year from now, two years from now? How does it all come together? Like, It could make sense, but there's so many things they have to do for the Kuzmenko signing to make sense and be successful for them. And why commit to another one of those contracts, like Kuzmenko, when he's very like a lot easier to trade right now, you get a nice return for him, and just see if you can get more out of Besser or Garland, yeah. who already have those contracts and are already locked up. Yeah, for sure. But I think what the organ- the way the organization views it, to your point, is something that Taka talked about, the duos. Yeah. They feel like they have a duo with Kuzmenko and Pedersen. They want to make a great case to keep Pedersen long-term. I know Marty Red said, uh, asked if he wonders if Petter- the organization already knows that Pedersen won't re-sign, and that's why they're looking to trade Horvat and do other things. I don't think that's the case at all. I think the organization is full-on trying to sign Pedersen and are going to do everything humanly possible and believe they can keep him this offseason. And part of keeping him is going to be Kuzmenko in that equation. But you just got to find a way to move those guys, like yeah. right, Dan? Because I do think when I watch Kuzmenko play, I see a better, more effective player than Besser. I see a better, more effective player than Connor Garland. If I had to choose, I'd rather keep him over those guys. But just find a way to get those guys off the <laughs> roster by the offseason. That's the biggest thing. Uh, you've got to find a way to clear some cap space. Uh, there's, you're running out of time on saying that that's what we want to do. Um, it's sort of what you need to do at this point in order to make all of these pieces fit the way you would like them to. Um, One thing I've heard on Kuzmenko, especially after last night, has the big game against Chicago. All the GMs are in town. Great. We know Andre Kuzmenko is a trade asset. The biggest part of his value is his contract. That's an obvious assessment to make. But I've started to see people at least wonder if Kuzmenko's trade value could match that of Bo Horvat's. Come on, stop. I, I mean... How? Look, I know hockey Twitter is a wild place. But Come on. People, who, who, who's credible saying that's actually happening? Even media, people. not just... This, not sa- just, this sounds like a politician. There are people look, saying things. I'm not like... Is this a straw man you're building here? I'm the not streets like, have been saying. <laughs> the streets are talking. Uh, the streets are saying, I, I, I'm not going to like specifically name drop others, but like, you know, other people that write for big websites have pondered this. No, it's absurd. What are we doing here? Are we serious? Kuzmenko's going to have the same trade value as Bo Horvat, a centerman who's on pace to score like 50 some goals. The this same year? or more. No, man. Come on. Come on. Let's be real about this. Like Kuzmenko, I'm sure has decent value. He'll, he'll get you a late first round pick, I think, or equivalent value, whether that's two, a second and something else. Sure. I buy that. Absolutely. Yeah. But but okay, here's 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 the thing. He's never played in the playoffs. He has one year track record. He scored a lot of points on a bad Vancouver team. His defensive game is still a work in progress. What NHL contender that knows what it takes to win in the postseason looks at him and says, We'll give up our best prospect in a first round pick for a winger with no NHL no postseason experience? Come on. Yeah. Nobody's doing that. I agree with you. Like sure you'll get decent value, but you're not getting the same that you're getting for Bo. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's ludicrous. Uh, Logan, how come nobody's talking about selling off Kuzmenko at the trade deadline and re-signing him in the summer? Uh, you let him go, he's gone. How often do you see that happen? I think him is different because yeah. I think he wants to stay. And I think there is a, I think there is a kinship between like Kuzmenko and the organization and a yeah. plan. And if they did that, I think he'd take it as, oh, you guys don't want me. I'm not coming back. Yeah. Well, uh, it seems as though like, you know, they, they made him... Uh, I wouldn't say promises, but you know they said there's going to be opportunities for you here. They've lived up to giving him those opportunities. He's lived up to making the most of those opportunities. So I could see why there's a kinship there, as you say. But um, it's very like as much as we always say, oh, just like trade him at the deadline and bring him back in the summer. How often do you see that situation actually play out? Yeah, it happens every once in a while. Like well, who? Uh... There's it's very rare. I think I can't even think of somebody off the top of my head. There's been a few. I keep forgetting. There's somebody. There's a good example of it, but uh, nonetheless, 
Uh, nonetheless, yeah. it's one of those things that it's not as realistic as people make it out to be. A guy that is realistic for is like Luke Shen, mm-hmm. you know, that type of player. But even him, like, what if he goes somewhere and they have success and he's happy there? And he's like, you know, I'd rather go back here for another year than go and deal with whatever I dealt with in Vancouver <laughs> for two years. Like, it's it's possible. Uh, Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw. Coming up, Kevin Woodley was is going to join us. Uh, his take on Rick Tockett. Uh, New systems, new structure, better line changes, all of that next with Kevin Woodley on Canuck Central. Canuck Central in the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. Uh, other big Canucks news today, Sat. What's up? Uh, Phil DiGiuseppe was called up from uh, from the Abbotsford Canucks. And uh, when that happened, what was the first thing you thought about? Is he finally going to make his Canucks debut? <laughs> okay, what was the second thing you were thinking about? <laughs> <laughs> How many times could I get away with saying his name on the radio today? All right, well, the third thing probably was food then, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> Because I saw the topic you put into our uh, rundown today about uh, Phil DiGiuseppe and in what honor you were of Phil DiGiuseppe's yeah. call up. <laughs> yeah, what are the top five definitive top five Italian joints in Vancouver? Oh, definitive top definitive five. top five. So, Lower Mainland or Vancouver? Uh, Vancouver area. I'm good with like you know. Okay. I know there's some good spots in like uh, Pomo's got a great spot. Mm-hmm. Um, White Rock Crescent Beach is a really nice. Oh spot. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've heard about it a lot, but I haven't actually been. Um, you know what? Like, populate the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. All your right. favorite Italian joints, and we'll talk about some of them after five thirty. I want Italian food. I mean, it's always the best. Uh, but let's uh, bring in our next guest. It is Kevin Woodley, uh, In Goal Magazine, the goalie guru. And NHL.com covering the Vancouver Canucks. What's happening, Woodley? Not much, not much. I'm trying to think. Reach like White Rock, South Surrey. That's that's my backyard. I'm trying to Italian. Uh, I got a lot of places I could take you out here that you would really enjoy. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna get I'm gonna get lit up here for missing something in my backyard. But um, yeah, I, I'm heading to the beach. I'm hitting like an Uli's. Like there's so many good options out here. So. Just let me know when you need to come out here and eat some real food. Ah, sounds. Uh, <laughs> I'll take you up on that. I'm never, I'm never opposed to food and to eating, uh, as as many know. Definitely not sad either, because he's always eating. He's like I'm Brad Pitt, in Ocean's eating. Eleven. I always say. Um, all right. So the Vancouver Canucks, they make the coaching change, and something we've talked a lot about in in our hits with you has come up quite a bit. With Rick Tockett, like we almost need a counter on the amount of times he's mentioned line changes as something that's a non-negotiable for him. And that's just in a couple of days in the lead up to his first game, which was last night. And he even mentioned it post game again. Oh, like, and listen, not to harp on this, but I remember, and I, I'm trying, it might've been Bick in the summer when the conversation was, who do you extend, Bo or JT? And maybe I was just frustrated with the fact that was the topic of conversation constantly at that point. But I, I literally responded, whoever decides they're actually going to hustle to the bench on a line change first, give me him. And I know this is something I've harped on before. And a lot of people, I, I've actually had a lot of blowback on it. Like, you know, kind of like, did you play the game type stuff? Like, yeah. does it really matter? And I'm like, yeah, it does, because I talked to the coaches and other teams. Hell, they were pre-scouting it. Like, this guy's going to saunter back. You can catch him on a quick chain, on a quick up, as he does. Like, you know, like, there's – this was something that other teams noticed. This is something that they noticed in the coaching room. This was a problem, because it's not just about not hustling off and, like, you know, that – rah rah make sure you're always moving your leg stuff you were leaving your teammates Mm -hmm. in bad situations through the lack of hustle you know you're getting off slowly and leaving the other guy hanging on an odd man rush and and taking a minus like you were just not it was just it was not good from a team perspective and so for all the focus on you know 
better structure and better defending. And I think a lot of people want to see what changes with the X's and O's in this system when they change, because obviously none of it had last night. It was interesting to be in the Chicago room post game. And they all talked about the neutral zone and the way they played being exactly what they saw in the pre-scouts and not a surprise to them because they didn't expect changes this soon after a coaching change. Like they played the same way. We're not talking about like rocket science changes in terms of, um, how you play the game from an X's and O's system standpoint. We are talking about just basic effort, puck management, um, and at times hustle. And these are the things that I think had slipped. And frankly, for some players had just never been there in this organization and, and they weren't, they weren't coming under Bruce. So, and that hadn't changed under Bruce. And so, what I'm curious about is it's easy to get it in the short term. Can you maintain it in the long term? Because, you know, there are some guys here that, you know, frankly, this just hasn't been part of their, you know, I've said it before, DNA. Like how much of this can be coached in mm-hmm. um, and, and how much tough love is it going to take? And are there guys who are just, you know, they'll get there in the short term because everybody's focusing on it, but they'll revert to form eventually. And this is the challenge for Rick Tockett and his staff. And it was, it was really nice to see last night. I mean, my God they had less than one expected goal against last mm-hmm. night. Yeah. Like two high danger chances all night. Um, like, again, it's the Chicago Blackhawks, but structure wise in terms of guys being in the right spot and his decisions with the puck. Like I know he praised, uh, talk it praised JT for, for the decision he made to come off before, before the second Kuzmenko goal. But there was another play, you know, coming up the ice where Patterson's rushing up the right side and there's two pass options, one in the middle and one on the far side. And there's a lot of bodies in the way. And I was thinking to myself at one point, I'm like, man, I hope he doesn't try a backhand pass across the middle of the ice here because he's skilled enough to make it. Mm-hmm. And we've seen him make it before, but we've seen him try it before and it goes the other way. As much as JT gets all the, the crap for bad turnovers, um, his lane was being cut off, but instead he just put his... He just put his head down, gained the center line, made sure he got past that forecheck with a little bit of speed burst, and dumped it in. And they started a cycle. And it's decisions like that that help you stop being the worst team in the entire National Hockey League in terms of the rush chances you give up. Because you're not turning over the puck in bad spots. You're not putting teammates in bad spots. And the other part of that is being on the right side of the puck and getting, like, we're going to hear... We heard about line changes. We're going to hear about backtracking because as much as the defense gets crapped on for an inability to sort of manage rush chances against the reason at times that they're caught flat footed or the gap control is um, so poor is because there's no back pressure from the forwards. Like it's a five man unit thing. Another thing we hear a lot about, and these are not again, massive institutional system X and O changes. These are mindset mentality and, and sort of more, you know, like what you care about and what you're willing to work at type of things. And so nice start last night. The challenge is talk at himself said will be who's willing to buy in on this long term. And then the last part is we didn't see any, there were no shots to be blocked. And in the first goal, when it was actually yet another example of, you know, taking away eyes but not taking away lanes properly, that's going to be the other part of this equation that I haven't heard talk at name check the way he has backtracking, the way he has line changes. But I'm curious to see how much of a focal point that becomes because it's sort of, you know, that's sort of the last part of the equation that's killed them defensively is is an, is an unwillingness at time to block shots and yet still being in lanes to take away their goalie's eyes. You know, we spend so much time talking about coaching and what a coach can do, and I, and I do agree with the overall sentiment that a coach, in terms of how they approach things, generally are pretty similar across the National Hockey League. Does it not just come down to your points of emphasis and how you hold the team accountable to make sure they do the things you want them to do more than anything else? And I'm not trying to crap on Boudreaux, and we all we we talked about the situation at length about how it got here and everything and where the blame lies. But it's very clear he wasn't emphasizing certain certain things. He didn't have certain rules or enough rules, and there was no no holding people accountable for those things. And that's why they kept doing the same things over and over again. So. And we heard OEL even talk about how it's good for these guys to have rules. Other players have mentioned the same thing. It's good for us to have more rules. It's very clear that not not even the structure of how you play, just the structure of what you're supposed to do and not do in terms of simple things is something that was lacking clearly before. 
I mean, the biggest thing to me is out of what you said, there's the accountability part, right? Yeah. Like you can't, you can't, you can't get it to stop if you don't hold them accountable. And you know, if some of your biggest culprits are some of the guys you need to create the, you know, put you behind because of some of the mistakes they make, but then you rely on them by overplaying them like crazy to try and get you back in the games when they're the one that put you in the hole in the first place through some of those mistakes. Like I just don't, I don't know how much accountability there was. Um, you know, part of that, Hey, like he's, he, Bruce was a player's coach and um, he motivated in different ways. And like, let's not lose sight of the fact how well he did that. Um, and, and the success he had with it, with, with largely the same group last season. Um, but but I do, you know, like I'm curious to see how this goes long term, you know, with with some players. And JT is going to be a focal point. He always is a focal point, um, you know, for good reason in a lot of cases. But, you know, rolling him back out there 24 minutes after some of those mistakes versus, you know, like, are we going to see some tough love if some of those habits return? Or, you know, that that's accountability, the Delia thing. Um you know, it's one thing. It's one thing if JT has to apologize behind the scenes, but when publicly, he, not only is he not held accountable, but he's bailed out and has other people accept responsibility and tell you that, you know, we're overreacting to it. When I know in the locker room um, that that you know that wasn't the case, then you know, I, again, it's accountability, and I and I think that was a problem. And I and again, one night everybody's going to try hard and do the right things right now. But long-term, I think accountability to go back to Stan Smeal's speech, you know, almost 14 months ago is something that, that, that has sort of lacked in this organization a little bit uh, right down to the locker room and, and onto the ice and, and, and from the coaching staff. And it seems it's going to be here now. Let's see how he uses it. Let's see how effective it is. And I think that's a big part of this change being made now because you need to know what's going to work. Right, like you need to know whether it really is something that be, can be coached and emphasized into them, or if I said, and as we've theorized in the past, like for some guys, this just isn't going to be in their DNA. And if that's the case, you better figure out who you're moving on from now, rather than waiting to try and figure this all out next October. I think something they've really needed as well, given you know they had different assistants, uh, you know through through the end of Travis's tenure, they went through system changes um, with that coaching staff. Then they bring in the new coach, and they've had a bunch of new assistants. Uh, they bring in Mike Yo, and and like you, we've heard players talk about, well, we've just had so many different system changes in the last couple of years. Like I, I just think consistency is going to be something that might help this group in the long run. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, and, and they, they sort of admitted the same thought process right from day one on the, on the first introductory press conference. Like you expect to see, you know, Huglander and Pod Coles. And I think Huglander had a, had from by all accounts talking to people who were there a pretty good game last night for Abbotsford. Um, you expect to see them back here because you want them to get on that same page as well. Right. Like, like you want them to have that instruction. Uh, you probably want Pod Coles in here at a time when Sergey Gonchar is as well. So just as Andre Kuzmenko said post game last night, he can help you bridge that language gap in terms of some of the teaching that's going on here, and have a group that knows what we're doing now is what we're going to be doing for the next three years. You've got a, a coach who's going to demand sort of accountability to it, and you better buy in. Or and this and that, the or is what we don't know. You know, how he manages to continue to get that buy-in, will it be, you know, is it going to be ice time? Is it going to be benchings? Is it going to be public accountability? Or will it just be on the same page as management and guys who aren't doing it will be on their way out? Like, for this management team, I don't know that we ever got to that point where players felt ultimately accountable for what they didn't didn't do on the ice. And I think, you know, to be honest, part of that is the fact that it was so public that Bruce wasn't their guy. Like, I don't think they put him in a great situation. I'm not taking him off the hook here completely, but it's not a great situation when mm-hmm. um, you're in the final year of your deal and, and, and your president of hockey operations is, you know, telling a national broadcast he didn't even know you had that year and he just brought you back because, hey, you were under contract. Like, it wasn't a great situation. Um, not being able to get that accountability, I don't know how much of that is Bruce and how much is the situation, but the reality is it wasn't here. It just wasn't here. And so now there's someone in place that's going to demand it. Let's see how it goes. Let's see who's willing to be accountable for more than one game or one week or one month. 
Let's see who's willing to do the work defensively and make these line changes with their feet moving on a consistent basis, you know, moving forward well beyond the initial, everybody's watching, everybody's paying attention. I really got to bust my ass here for the new guy. So do we get a truer sense then uh, over the next little while if the Canucks can uphold these baseline standards of, you know, professionalism and playing somewhat uh, winning hockey or respectable hockey at the very least? Do we get a full evaluation of what these goalies are all about then? Spencer Martin, Colin Delia? Uh, I think it might take a little time because I think it's going to take a little time to answer just the question I just asked in terms of who, you know, there's probably, there's going to be fluctuation. Actually, the reality is there's always going to be fluctuation. Um, you know, just even, even when everybody is buying in, like you're going to have nights where not everybody is good. That's, that's just the reality of hockey, but you're going to figure out who buys in more. And I do think that you're going to get a better environment for your goaltenders over time. I mean, man, if it's like last night, goalies will be like putting their hands up and saying, can I come here? Cause your numbers are, end, are going to end up sparkling the one adjustment that they'll have to make. And yeah, so if, if, those type of structure things. I think the one part that we'll have to be careful of here is if when the system changes are added in terms of where everyone is on the ice and who's responsible for what, as these are added and players learn to trust them, the goalies also have to make an adjustment. They don't just go where the puck goes. They make reads based on where they expect it to go and whether they can trust guys to be there. And so getting on the same page and trusting everyone else to be on the same page in front of you you know, there might be some misreads here and there from time to time as, as, you know, as everybody sort of builds that trust once they start adding some of the X and O differences. And there, you know, there might be mistakes where at times we're going to think, man, the goalie looked terrible there, but what we didn't know is that the mistake was actually by someone else. So it might take a little more time to get that set, but certainly in terms of, you know, not facing the most and most dangerous rush chances in the National Hockey League, um, which is what they've given up to this point. Yeah, it's going to be a better environment for the goaltenders. The adjustments they're going to have to make beyond systems and reads, you know, at this point, based on last night, and, and this isn't an excuse. Um, it's the nature of the job. But it is an adjustment nonetheless mentally. Like 14 shots is, like they're used to seeing that per period. And being able to stay focused when you're not busy, again, not being able to do it, like that's a job. There's no excuse, but it can be an adjustment. There are guys, we've seen them, there are guys who are fringe uh, Hall of Famers who could never do it. Um, you know, Pecorine struggled with it mightily in Nashville when Laviolette got there and all of a sudden the shot counts dropped and he wasn't busy. He struggled to be a not busy goaltender. Um, Curtis Joseph is my most famous example. Put him on a bad team, he stood on his head. Uh, and, and like, look like he should win the Vesna every year. Put him on a good team like they did in Detroit late where he what, didn't need to do as much, wasn't as busy, didn't stay in rhythm, and he struggled. So it's not to build in, a, in an excuse, but there might be a bit of an adjustment period there when you're used to seeing 35 a night and all of a sudden, it, if, if, if last night, and again, it's the Blackhawks, so it, it's not necessarily an indication. Let's see what it looks like tonight. But you start getting down into the low 20s or under 20 shots, and it becomes a bit of a mental battle for goalies to stay engaged for the full 60 minutes. And they have to find sometimes guys work with sports psychologists. They break periods down into you know shorter segments. Like There are a lot of mental tools you can use to make this adjustment, but it is an adjustment nonetheless. And frankly, I'm curious to see uh, how they make it, including Thatcher when he gets back. Because, you know, I, I remember saying this, you know, the only question he hadn't answered coming into this year, and I guess now we can add staying healthy will be one that, that he has to answer for for a while now until he does. But the only question he hadn't answered is, could be a, could he be a good goaltender behind a good team? Uh, it was the same like Markstrom going from Vancouver to Calgary, that for under Daryl Sutter as the shot totals went down. Like, sometimes when you're as busy as they've been, you just go out there and you get to turn the mind off because you, you don't have time to think you're just you're just out there battling and shot after shot after shot and you find a rhythm and you find your timing and your mind doesn't wander and your brain doesn't start churning man 14 shots is there's a lot of time especially when they pepper the other guy like they did last night if you're watching that in a tight game you're watching your team you know like Mrazek was brilliant in the first period it could have been four or five nothing early yeah. it's a really good save 
if you're the guy at the other end and your mind goes to, oh man, he's standing on his head down there. I better not let the next one in. And it's a pretty easy place to go with your mind and mentally you're in trouble. And so that may be a bit of an adjustment here, but it's one that uh, you'd rather have to make compared to the alternative of facing the volume and quality they have been so far this season. Uh, we're coming up on uh, 10 weeks for Thatcher Demko out of the lineup. Uh, what, what are you hearing on, on his recovery? Well, I think I said this like last week or the week before. Like, uh, it, you know, my impression it was always going to be after the All-Star break. Uh, I think you'll probably see him on that road trip they have when they come out of this break. Don't know in terms of whether he'll actually be playing or not on that road trip, but but be back on the road trip. And to be honest with you, I know the initial prognosis was six weeks, so now that it's getting close to 10, a lot of people are scratching their heads. But I want to say that that timeline has been what I expected for – and I apologize, guys. I know we talked about this, and I can't remember if it was last week or the week before, but I feel like it was almost two weeks ago where I said you're not seeing him till after the All-Star break. Yeah. Um, so that's not a surprise. I guess if it's not a surprise to me, um, it, it just tells you like it's not like there's been a late setback here so much as just you know as they got further and further into this and into the recovery from it, uh, it became clear that six weeks was probably a little optimistic, but. You know, you, you look at, a, at, a, at an injury in general terms and you give a general prognosis, and that's what they did. And so I, I don't think this is – I know that medical staff is under a lot of heat, um, and so this adds to the raised eyebrows. Um, but until I see him back on the ice, and unless I see a problem that he's still trying to play through in terms of hiccups in movement, uh, I'm not going to worry about it. This is just taking your time and being sure with a guy who's really important to your long-term success and your long-term mm-hmm. future. And, you know, is coming off a procedure in the summer and, and has, you know, sort of struggled to manage that in terms of it leading to or having a role in another injury. The last thing you want to do is rush it back and put him back out there until he's not only 100% mentally, but 100% physically and not trying to compensate at all for either this injury or the one that required uh, a surgery last summer. One thing that uh, the organizations talked about recently, and especially talk it, process over results. So if that's the case, it's, it's about the process, then isn't the best thing to do is to truly manage Thatcher Demko's starts when he does come back, alternate starts, and not let him really have the heavy workload? Is that something that we do see, you think, when he's ready? No, I mean, like he dictates that. And I don't mean he dictates that by saying, this is what I want to do. Yeah. I mean, his body and the way it responds dictates that. If the extra four weeks between prognosis and ultimately when he returns is the difference between him coming back on the ice, feeling like there is nothing he has to worry about, um, and maybe having that in the back of his mind or even in some of his movements, then that might be the difference between him coming back and being able to go full bore. Um, but certainly where you're at as an organization, like, I don't think you come in and like ride him like a workhorse, like you, like, you know, put him on like a 70 game pace by any means. Um, especially considering like, don't think it's a coincidence that, um, you know, he was one of the busiest goalies as much as it's the injury itself last year was one that can just happen to any goalie at any time. Like, you know, him and Saros both didn't make it to the end of the season, both sort of broke down in the final weeks. And I don't think that's a coincidence that they were two of the busiest goalies in the National Hockey League to that point. Not just in terms of starts and shots faced, but in terms of playing behind a team that required them to make explosive, dynamic, lateral movements. Um, that's the reason they were, you know, they were in that, statistically at least for Thatcher, in that Vesna conversation from December on. And that's a lot to ask. And so coming off of injuries as a result of that, you know, rolling them out there every single night down the stretch makes no sense at all. So um, even if they were to go on like some huge run and have some silly long shot at the playoffs that I think, you know, we all can agree is, is totally unrealistic right now, uh, you have to guard against that. Uh, that's just the NHL today. And especially where he is coming back, uh, it wouldn't make any sense to go back into a workload, you know, mentality. Like Colin Delia has made a lot of good. I know that goal last night was not good. I'm not going to make any excuses for it. <laughs> Um, he'll be the first one to say it. Uh, just didn't get to the ice fast enough. Didn't seal. Um, and but but I think if you look overall, I haven't, haven't looked up his numbers today. But like 
you know, people, it's funny because I hear criticism of the goaltender. Like, Collins' numbers are still really good relative to expected. Um, like, really good. So you can see the strides he's made in his game, moments like that aside, and there's only only been a couple of them. The sharp angle, I guess, in, in Winnipeg uh, where Ehlers walked out in that one. Um, you know, whether it's him or whether it's Spencer who's making some changes in terms of trying to manage his chest angle a little better, uh, something that I think they had planned on working on all this year, but they lost the ability to manage it and keep working at it as soon as he had to become the guy and it started to slip. Like, having them and continuing to use them when Thatcher comes back, you're going to need them next year. Whichever one it is, you're going to need them. You're not going to play Thatcher Demko 70 games next season. So finding out more about them as they manage their game and make strides down the stretch is going to be just as important as managing Thatcher's workload. Woodley, you're the best. Thanks for this. Thanks, guys. Will I see you out at the Prospects game tonight? Oh, uh, no, we got to do the Canucks yeah, game here, buddy. We're covering Canucks cracking. Oh, that's right. There's another game. See, I'm, I'm, I've been, dude, I have been in. we got Vancouver. we got Prospects. And I even made a visit out to Abbotsford to see a goalie coach who was in town. So I'm living in three different worlds and three different leagues. So I'll, have one on, I'll have one on my computer and one in front of me. Wicked. Uh, awesome, Woodley. Thanks for this. Enjoy the cracking. Uh, yes. Uh, all right. There is Kevin Woodley. joins us every Wednesday. A lot of uh, reaction coming in on how much uh, our listeners love to listen to Woodley and his great insights on structure, goaltending, and everything else. He is definitively one of the best. Uh, All right. Coming up, overrated or underrated? That's next on Canuck Central.